0: As the receiver, my my sole job is to act as an unbiased third party and get the property sold for the highest and best price possible.
1: You're listening to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast, your source for the latest news and trends in family law in the state of Texas. Now, here's your host, attorney Holly Draper.
2: Today, we're excited to welcome Travis Cross to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast. Travis is the owner of Lawyer's Receivership Group, a receivership company based out of North Texas. The Lawyer's Receivership Group is a network of attorneys who have obtained their membership in the National Association of Realtors and serve as receivers appointed by the court to serve in property disputes. They work hard to determine fair market value of the property under the jurisdiction of a receivership. Their approach is to make real estate simple for attorneys, mediators, and judges with due diligence, effective communication, and reasonable fees. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm glad you reached out, and uh, I'm very excited for today.
2: So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself?
0: So as you mentioned, my name is Travis Cross. Um, I am an attorney, I'm a real estate agent, and also I'm something called a receiver, which we'll explore today. Um, background is I actually never wanted to be an attorney. Um, I went to Oklahoma state, I'm from Plano. I went to Oklahoma state, played football for him, graduated early and my degree was in English and I was just like, I don't want to get my master's in English. Like what else can I do? And I had three years left of my scholarship. So I was like, I'll just take the LSAT and see if I get into law school and we'll just go from there. So I got a good grade, a good score and i got into university of houston and they gave me a full ride to play football while going to law school so i did that and i graduated from university of houston law center moved back to the dallas area and i started uh, working as a family law attorney in the area for about 2 years under another solo practitioner and then i went out and started my own practice cross family law and then i did i've I still have the practice, but then after about two years of doing family law, I found out about receivership because I represented some receivers and I just thought that it might be helpful if you can be an attorney and a realtor um, in the receivership capacity. So I started going after the receivership business about two years ago. And since then, we've started the Lawyers Receivership Group. Um, we're associated with Clay Stapp & Co. in Dallas, and we have a few associates working for us and a few potential associates that are going to come on board that I'm really excited for.
2: So generally, you mentioned receivership a couple times. Tell us what receivership is, what that means, in case any of our listeners are not familiar with that.
0: Okay, so receivership is basically um, if there is a piece of property that's held up in litigation... The court needs to appoint an unbiased third party to manage it, dispose of it, determine where assets went, anything like that. A receiver can be appointed over really any piece of property. It can be real estate. It can be a business. It can be even debt collection. You know, there was uh, the Brown versus Board of Education that actually started all this um, because this receivership comes from like our common law, original common law and under queen elizabeth is where it started coming about and then the us courts used it and the and the case i mentioned that it's they appointed them over the school board so you have a receiver that's keeping segregation from happening and they would report to the court say you know we've we've implemented these new policies And they became the decision maker for these schools. So a receiver can be appointed over any capacity. And they're basically the decision maker. In my specific case as a receiver, I do real property, real estate, and I do businesses as well. And when a court appoints me, I basically step in as the seller for a piece of real property. And I sign off on the listing agreements, determine fair market price, um, the contract, the title work, any amendments, stuff like that. And because I also have my real estate license, I can list the property as well for the market to see to get the best offers we can. Um, And for a business, we're basically just a gatekeeper um, where we receive the emails, documents, and we hire a team to kind of determine whatever the court needs, where the funds went, the value of the business, um, anything along those lines.
2: So, I think most attorneys probably just think of receivership, at least most family lawyers, probably think of receivership with return, uh, respect to real estate. And I know for real estate, it's you don't have to be a realtor to act as a receiver, but it seems like it would be really helpful. Uh, we have a case where the receiver is not a realtor, and then we have to bring in a realtor. They bring in a realtor to handle the transaction.
0: Yes. And also, it it helps if you're also an attorney as well. As a receiver, you don't need to be a realtor. You don't need to be an attorney. You basically just... There's five qualifications uh, to be a receiver. And one of them, the the most difficult one is that you have to own property in the state of Texas. The other requirements are really not that... um, Aren't that hard to, um, I guess, uh, satisfy.
2: So... Why would, you know, us general family lawyers, why do you think it's a good idea that our receiver, if we're talking about real estate anyway, should be both an attorney and a realtor?
0: So whenever it comes to the receivership capacity, there's really four documents that always need to be filed with a court. And it's a motion on report of pending sale, an order on that as well, and a motion report of sale. Um, and then an order on that as well. So you ha- you at least have to have the knowledge to be able to draft motions, draft orders, uh, the capability to file those motions and orders with the court. And those are just the base requirements. Whenever it comes to a receivership where a party to the case is not complying, that's where you start getting into motions for enforcement, um, multiple hearings, and, and it really takes also a litigate at that point in time. In such scenarios, um, it's helpful to have the attorney as well, because it it is going to be a contested hearing, preparing exhibits, having witnesses, being able to cross-examine, direct examine. Um, So there's a lot that goes into that world if it's ever contested. I've seen a lot of my um, counterparts and other receivers in the area. Most of them are real estate agents. And um, they... If they ever get to that point, they will have to hire an attorney at that point in time to have the contested hearing, uh, draft the motions, draft the orders. And what I've seen is wherein the attorney has to go back and determine all the knowledge, you know, basically prepare for the hearing X, Y, and Z. But if you're both the realtor and the receiver and an attorney, you're aware of the scenario, you're not gonna incur those legal expenses to go back and prepare because you're already aware of that knowledge. Um, Because whenever it comes to what I do, it's receivership and real estate basically. And whenever it comes to real estate, we no charge any of our fees there, anything associated with our ball cap as a realtor is simply paid by the commission or paid by the commission from the sale. So like determining listing price, drafting contracts, drafting amendments, showing the property, um, anything that would be in your normal real estate realtor capacity. Whenever it goes to the receivership side, having the hearings, drafting the motions, drafting the orders, that's where the fees are incurred. And I think... With the lawyers receivership group we've done a good job of at least making it cheaper um, for the the parties that are currently in the receivership
2: so you talked about you know commission on the sale you talked about fees for the motions generally how are receivers getting paid and who's picking up the tab for that
0: so generally receivers are getting paid at the end when the property sells or the business sells and are Our commission, the real, are the I call them receiver fees and real estate commission, just to try to keep them as separate as possible. But the receivership fees are paid at closing; they're included in the in the um, final seller statement, um, and they just get paid by the title company. There's also other scenarios where, um, if the receivership capacity is going to continue after the sale of this property for whatever reason, the court will. Pay the receiver sometimes, but they may also order the funds to be deposited into the registry of the court and are even into our trust account as the receiver. And when the parties agree or they go to trial and the court determines how much the receivership fees are are total at the end of the case, they'll authorize the disbursement for the receivership fees. We bill three twenty-five an hour, or I bill three twenty-five an hour, and. We've seen fees be $2,000 in contested cases. We've seen fees up to $15,000. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate when we get to that point because I always try to tell the attorneys and even their clients with their attorneys on the phone that you know the more you can test this, like this is where we're going, this is why I think we should sell the property for this. But if we have to have hearings, that just increases receivership fees. And they're always aware, always warn them before we go down that road.
2: So from our client's perspective, what is going to be the main difference between just using a regular realtor to sell their property and using a receiver?
0: The main difference is going to be that the receiver has the full authority pursuant to the order from the court to act as the seller. We have the authority to sign the listing agreements, any documents necessary to effectuate the sale of the property or the business. Um, We... We also have the authority to make repairs to the property if, if we need, if it needs to happen. In most scenarios, this is you know a roof repair. Usually, there is insurance on the property, so we can actually enact that insurance, call the insurance company, give them the order, say we're going to authorize this policy. Um, but also, I've been appointed in probate cor- uh, cases um, wherein there is no insurance on the roof because the person passed away two years ago and they're just now getting to a receiver. And that's something that I, as the receiver, pay for out of pocket. And then I get reimbursed at closing or, uh, or through the registry of the court when the court authorizes it. The The other thing is, as a receiver, there's fees associated with that. And so it's not just the real estate commission that is 3% listing price. It's It's also the receivership fees on top of that. So what I've seen a lot of courts do, especially in Dallas and Collin, um, they will appoint me as the realtor at first, and then if for whatever reason there's any issues going on with the property, they'll they'll appoint me as the receiver thereafter to effectuate the sale. So that's that. Those are the two main differences. It normally catches. Uh, it especially catches clients um, at surprise, like they're surprised when they find out how much authority we have, and even attorneys, because um, receivership isn't something that happens a lot. But whenever it does come up, that's basically the authority we have. And and just to go on my point, you know, our authority is determined by the order. We have a five-page, maybe six-page, if you include the judge's signature. But, in order that determines all of our authority, you know written out in the four corners of the document, and it gives us complete authority we need to act in our receivership capacity. Um, alternatively, if you had someone appointed as a as a receiver and it's a one page document that simply says that this receiver has the authority to to dispose of this property or sell this property in any way that they can, um, that's just not going to be sufficient enough because the actual authority needs to be in there to sign the listing agreement, um, even refinance a property, repair a property, anything we need in our capacity.
2: So I never thought about the possibility of having somebody first acting just as a realtor. And then if things go south with the parties or whatever, Transitioning that person into being a receiver. I know you mentioned sometimes the court would appoint you as the realtor first. Do you see cases where you know, everybody seems to get beginning along? Everyone agrees this property needs to be sold. They're going to agree to have you be the realtor, but there's also an agreement that in the event the property hasn't sold within a certain amount of time, or you know what other you know, certain other criteria, then anybody could petition to have you also become the receiver is that something that you see happen
0: that is something i see happen um because even in so we have the order for appointment of realtor um and then we have the order for appointment of receiver but in the order for appointment of realtor it says if uh, at any time if the parties believe that the other party is not acting in good faith or something like that that they can move forward in appointing the realtor as as a receiver um and i I've seen that be incredibly helpful because, as an attorney and as a receiver and as a realtor, um, I, I have the ability to speak with the parties and not give them legal advice because I'm not representing them, but just to explain to them like the process if something goes on where they're not agreeing, um, what could potentially happen, and um, the and it could be placed in receivership. And normally that that helps decrease like the attorney's fees um, because usually they'll listen, um, but it's it's helpful just to have like another person in your corner as an attorney um, that really can talk to your client and help them from from jumping off that ledge as well. So I would prefer it um, to have. Well, I would prefer the receivership capacity because that's always. You know, like we're under contract. In 30 days, this will close. There will be no issues. But case law says that the receivership should be the last resort. And the main reason for that is because you're placing the party's property into the registry of the court, basically, um, and having someone come in that's going to incur additional fees. So me personally, I think receivership should be the first line, uh, the first choice just to make sure everything goes fine. But If they're not under a timeline and um, there's no issue for getting this property sold immediately, then in the real estate capacity, I mean, we're at least getting the job done and getting it moving forward so long as the parties allow us.
2: So most of our listeners are family lawyers. When should family lawyers start to think about getting a receiver into the mix in their cases?
0: I think the the first step is obviously do an INA, right? Um, exchange documents to see what the parties have, determine what they have. The second step is determining who wants what and if they can keep a property. For example, if husband wants a million dollar house, but the estate has, you know, is only $1.1 million total in community property, there's probably a strong chance that he won't be able to keep that property. If he really wants to keep it, the next step is to see if the opposing council and opposing party agree to a potential refinance, cash out refinance, but that's also subject to there being enough funds in the property for a cash out refinance and the ultimate agreement between the parties, which isn't always easy. So thereafter, you normally will have your hearing for temporary orders. And if it is a scenario where it's going to be contested, it's not going to be agreed to, I think it's best at that point in time to ask for a receiver to sell the property. If you have someone living in the property, that's going to make it difficult to sell the property. That's probably the best time at a hearing for temporary orders. Um, And even if you bring it up to opposing counsel early on, you know, hopefully the parties and opposing counsel are reasonable and maybe you can get a rule 11 agreement that should be reflected in an order signed by the court. But at temporary orders, get a receiver if you really need it at that point in time. Otherwise, get the property listed under uh, in the real estate capacity and get it work uh, working to be sold. Um, and I always, and you you may disagree on this, but I always think it's best to put the proceeds into the registry of the court or into the receiver's trust account because you don't want one of the parties to take fifty percent and then go and spend it all, and then you're dealing with that at mediation and. It just, I think it just creates um, a much more difficult mediation, and my at least what I've seen.
2: Oh, for sure, we put uh, house proceeds into our trust account all the time because we don't, we don't yeah. want that money turning up missing before the cases. Before the cases, exactly, clean. exactly.
1: This episode of the Texas Family Law Insiders podcast is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm, providing family law appellate representation for non-parent custody cases, jurisdictional issues, property division, standing, conservatorship, possession and access, termination, parental rights, and grandparent access. For more information, visit draperfirm.com or call 469-715-6801.
2: So when is a receiver not appropriate?
0: If everyone's in agreement, you know, if everyone's working together and it's a scenario where the best case scenario is where the parties are like, look, this isn't going to be contested where, you know, we've already kind of divided our assets. We know what's going to happen. And there's no need for a receiver to be appointed there. And even then, if they're in such an agreement, they probably have a realtor that probably sold them that home or um, someone they know is a friend that maybe will list it and maybe give them a decrease in the list price, something like that. That's whenever it's not appropriate.
2: What about a scenario where maybe their house is upside down or there's not a ton of equity in the house? Are those scenarios where you can still use a receiver? And if so, how are those fees going to be paid?
0: Great question. Um, so I think... And I'm not going to speak for the judges because I would never do that because I love them. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I think that so long as there's going to be equity after the receiver, our real estate agent gets paid, and you know the mortgage is paid off, and the liens, our encumbrances are paid off, I would think a court would still appoint a receiver if necessary. Very recently, actually, um, I was... An attorney called me in the Dallas area, and they have a client that has, let's say, a uh, $500,000 property. And let's say that they're worried about having a lien or encumbrance against the property from some sort of lawsuit or something like that, a judgment. So they'll call me and they'll say, hey, you know, the judge said, if the property can be sold, and after everyone's paid, they're still, you know... Community is safe to be dispersed. Um, then you can move forward in selling it. So the first thing we do is because I can't do a title search; I'm not a title company. Um, but I have a really good relationship with a title company, and I'll just call them and say, "Hey, we need to do a preliminary title search on this property. We need to see if there's any liens, encumbrances, so stuff like that." And they'll probably they'll they usually do it within the day, sometimes 24 to 48 hours. But at that point in time, we see what's been filed against the property and determine if, if it's ever worth being sold. Um, because in Texas, we also have our homestead rights, right? And if that scenario where the property is 500000 they have a judgment, let's say for four hundred and eighty against the husband, If the property never sells, they can't force that sale. They can file the encumbrance and lien against the property, but they can't force the sale of the property. They will only be paid when the property sells. Um, So in that scenario, I understand the homestead rights and and protecting those rights. um, But also, uh, I think in the court's eye, it's even if there's a $480,000 judgment against husband and there'll be 20,000 remaining, I mean that's 20,000 that can go to wife and that judgment can be against the husband alone and then you you take that into consideration when determining you know the the final settle the the settled amount for the community estate so that does happen uh, determining what the property can be sold for and the net proceeds but with the increase in our real estate market in the past 2 years i have yet to experience the case where it doesn't make sense to sell a property. There's there's always been net proceeds.
2: So I can envision a situation where that might change soon. I mean, we see people come in who bought at the peak and maybe they had a VA loan and they paid 0% down or they paid 3% down. And now mm-hmm. the market has gone down some. And so the house they bought for a million dollars two years ago, they can sell for eight hundred thousand now and they owe more than that so in that scenario is a receiver off the table
0: I think in that scenario since we haven't experienced that yet we're just gonna have to get creative and see what happens with the court really what they want to do because then we're also talking about especially in the family law world I mean do we give that waste like is do we just call it a wash and give it to one of the parties or do we have an agreement that in 10 years hopefully the real estate market turns around and then they can sell then and split it 50 50. I think in that scenario a receiver wouldn't be appropriate at all but I mean I guess we we can just see what happens I because it just increases the fees there's no point in selling a property if there's going if there's not going to be any net proceeds and
2: well, sometimes they don't have they got to get rid of it because neither one of them can qualify for it on their own. Neither one of them can probably afford it on their own. And they got to get rid of it one way or another.
0: I think the only, if if they have to get rid of it, I think the only way a receiver steps into that capacity is if when the property is listed to be sold, one party just doesn't agree to a sales price. Even if it's fair market value, even, even if it's less than what they paid for, and they're just upset, they just won't agree. I think a receiver needs to step in at that point in time. And really, if they have to get rid of it, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it would it would just be the scenario where the court orders it to be sold by date certain or whatever. But if that never happens, then you could at mediation and it in the final decree that it's that they will remain, um, let's say in common or joint ownership for this property, but they're in agreement to sell it in 10 years when hopefully the real estate market picks up. At least that's what I think would happen in that scenario.
2: Now you mentioned fair market value. How does a receiver determine what the fair market value is and what you should be listing a property at?
0: So if if you're a receiver without your real estate license, as you're experiencing in your case, you hire are you you bring on a, a realtor that has access to MLS, that can list the property, look at comps in the area. The way I determine, and since I'm a realtor, all in one, you know, one one man shop, I can do everything. What, what we do is we look at the market, we look in that general vicinity, and we try to keep it to that neighborhood, same year, uh, 300 plus or minus square feet, see what's sold recently. Um, I always like to get into the property and see what we're dealing with, because sometimes there's not photos or, Sometimes in some cases it's you know the property has been damaged in some way in some divorce case. Um, So I like to get in there, determine what we're dealing with, take pictures, and then look at the the local comparables and see what is the most comparable here. Um, And that's just acting as a realtor. That's acting in the capacity of looking at the market, determining um, estimated sales price, um, and that's how as the receiver, I determine the the sales price. And really quick also was interesting. You might appreciate this. Um, So I served as an expert witness in a case with a case where the the wife disposed of, I think it was 15 properties. And she claimed that together, they were probably worth 100,000. When in reality, looking at the numbers, it was about 1.2 million total. Um, So I got brought in as the receiver and I'm being direct examined, cross-examined to talk about the estimated sales price, and the attorney on the other side that didn't have me as an expert witness, he asked me directly, um, so what's the appraised value for this property? And before coming in here, I I double-checked just to make sure the terminology and everything, but you as a realtor cannot say determined value unless you are a certified appraiser or working under one. And if you do, it's actually a class A misdemeanor. And and so I knew what he was doing, um, but I was like, "Well, the estimated sales price is this number." Um, so as a real as a realtor and, a, and as a receiver, um, it's always estimated sales price, never you know what is the uh, estimated appraised value or something like that, unless you're an appraiser or work under a certified appraiser.
2: So when you're the res- acting as a receiver, as opposed to just a run-of-the-mill realtor. Are you trying to price more aggressively to sell it as quickly as possible? Are you trying to price it higher to get the highest dollar amount for the parties? Where are you following on that spectrum and how do you decide the right approach?
0: So in answering that question, it's a total case-by-case basis. Um, there's been scenarios where I'm appointed as a realtor, but the property is about to go into foreclosure. Um, so what we do is we try to get on the market as soon as possible. Um, you know, list it for what I believe to be a, a fair estimated sales price, and then we'll allow it to be on the market for you know as long as we can, unless a great offer comes in at asking or over. Um, I've had a case before um, where we we had it listed for about three months, and it had to sell for for less than what we had it listed for. There are other circumstances that supported that, but that was because it was about to. One of their properties was about to go into foreclosure, and we had to sell by then to pay off that foreclosure balance. Um, so, it's so in that case, it's subject to the parties, subject to their circumstances. As the receiver, my my sole job is to act as an unbiased third party and get the property sold for the highest and best price possible, um, but. If there are scenarios where the parties are going to be impacted more and the attorneys are in, in agreement with taking a contract by this by date certain, um, then I can move forward with that. I think there's a lot of scenarios where it's not always getting the highest and best price, but also helping what the parties want to do. And what the reason why I'm comfortable in also helping the parties is because when we do our receiver's report of pending sale... Usually it says, this property has been listed, this is the highest and best price, whatever. That's the terminology and that's reflected in the order. And those scenarios where it may not be the highest and best price, I always include, this This may not be the highest and best price, but the parties are in agreement to this and the receiver is, is in agreement as well, subject to the court's approval. And so long as the court sees that motion, sign off, signs off on that order, I'm com- I'm comfortable in selling it for what the parties want. There's also been cases where as a receiver, as I mentioned before, it should be the last line of resort, right? And you would think before getting into receivership, if there's a way to sell the property to a family member or something like that, that's discussed. I've had about five or six cases where that doesn't happen. And so receiver gets appointed, we get it listed, and then the parties come to me, hey, we want to sell it to our daughter. We just want to give it to her by, for this price. Um, and in that scenario, it's the same situation. It's, you know, this may not be the highest and best price, but this is what the parties want and I have no objection to it. And so long as the court sees that and signs off on it, we can sell it for less than fair market value.
2: So you cannot actually close on the sale until the court signs off on it.
0: So I'm going to say hesitantly, yes, because you should have that approval from the court first. I have been in a court before where I filed a non-contested agreed motion and agreed order. And the court says, no, we'll have a hearing on it. We just want to get it on the record. It's like, well, judge, they're, they're agreeing to it. I understand. Let's go and get that set. And the judge says, well, you can go ahead and uh, close the property too if you want. I'm just like, judge, if we're having a hearing... Just the fact that we're having a hearing means that it's contested and no title company should close on a property if if it's contested and you don't approve it. So I have never seen it be closed without that report of pending sale and order on same. But just hearing that from the court, I think there's another way that that happens, a way that I know a title company shouldn't do. <laughs> um, but I could... Assume that that has happened based upon my conversation with the court.
2: I'm going to guess that you're, you were in Dallas County for that. Um, I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> so,
0: I don't want to confirm or deny.
2: <laughs> so what, um, what happens if one side isn't happy with the receiver?
0: So, at any point in time, if we are not doing our job or they're just unhappy with us, or just unhappy with having a receiver, losing that authority to determine you know what to sell it for, you can always file a motion to to remove receiver and you can always set it for hearing. I've had people that don't like losing that power and um, talk about hiring an attorney to do it, but I've never seen that. but that that would be the route to to remove a receiver. And on that notion, I think it's also important to say, just as an attorney can be substituted, a receiver can be substituted. I've seen, as we discussed before, real estate agents being appointed as a receiver, but not knowing what to do, their brokerage doesn't authorize them to sign off on the documents to act as a receiver because they don't want that liability. And in such a scenario, if they can't close or they don't know what to do or whatever reason, a receiver can be substituted. And I haven't been substituted. I've been substituted for the current receiver.
2: (laughs) So I want to touch on the other type of receivership that you do, specifically related to businesses. What's different or is there anything different about having a receiver involved in a family law case for a business?
0: So in that scenario, it's all subject to what the court wants to do. If the, if the business is being used as, you know, in a personal capacity and community fund, and it's a community, a part of the community estate and the community funds are being used for stuff that doesn't benefit the community estate. I've been appointed to determine where these funds went, um, determine its worth as well. So when they go to mediation, they can include that at mediation um, versus in the real estate capacity. It, is always to sell the property. Um, it's always to protect the property, manage the property, and then sell the property. And then in the business capacity, it's also if, the pro- if they want the property or they want the business to be sold, we could act in that capacity. That is an entirely different realm of receivership than real estate, but it's really not all that complicated because when we come on board for a business, even if I don't have experience with the business, I have the authority to hire someone that does, and then when hiring that person, also hire a forensic analyst to determine where the funds went, determine its value. Um, as a receiver, we we step in as basically the owner of the business, and we hire people to work as you know in, in any role that would be needed at the business. Just to make sure it keeps on moving forward, and and we can at least report to the court whatever they need. Normally, in that scenario, also I'll have a initial payment, like an initial retainer um, that gets paid to my trust account. That retainer is based upon hiring these other professionals to come in and determine, you know, what's going on. So that's also the difference because in the real estate capacity, we don't have a retainer; we get hired. And are we get appointed, not hired. And then we get paid our commission and any receiver's fees at closing. It's it's very different.
2: So we're just about out of time. But one question I like to ask everyone who comes on the podcast is, if you could offer one piece of advice to family lawyers, what would it be?
0: I've learned a lot in, in my role as a receiver. But I think one of the most important things I've learned when working with attorneys is... Always ask for help on your case and always be open to bring on board people to help determine the value of the estate. I've had a lot of attorneys, and even in my practice and what I saw before, will go to a hearing and use a Zillow estimate versus if you. Oh, that have, drives me crazy.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. It, but if you have someone you can call, say, hey, can you get me some numbers on this property? we can normally do it. Even if we don't tour the property, we can give a range for what it could be worth. And I think that's so important. I think also preparation for mediation and that same capacity, even if we're not appointed as the real estate agent or the receiver, we're always here to help as well. And that's the best advice I could give to attorneys. is <laughs> If there's real property, call a realtor or a receiver and they will get you the actual numbers.
2: So where can our listeners go if they want to learn more about you?
0: So we have our website. It's LRECG.com and the lawyers receivership But I mean, it's really just a, an online business card and you can see my pretty face, my team. And if you have any questions, you can also email me at Travis at LRECG.com. And I'm happy to answer questions. I'm happy to help out in any way. Um, we've been appointed to manage property on the border of Arkansas, on the border of Oklahoma, and on the border of Mexico. It's been all over the state of Texas. And what we can do is we can find a realtor in that area, kind of that same scenario for you, um, and just act as the receiver and get them appointed and hire them after we get appointed and sell the property. I mean, the, the goal of our company is to be across the state of Texas hopefully in 10 years, maybe five, we'll see what happens. Um, But just reach out to me if you have any questions at that email or, or you can go to our website.
2: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, For our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, go leave us a review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes.
1: The Texas family law insiders podcast is sponsored by the Draper law firm. We help people navigate divorce and child custody cases and handle family law appellate matters. For more information, visit our website at www.draperfirm.com.